Um, turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I have notes to get all the way down to verse 10, but as I learned last service, we're not going that far. Um, we're going to go a much shorter distance all the way down to verse 2. Um, is how far we're going to get. So the title I have for the study just doesn't work. Um, so uh, it was originally going to be Finding Contentment, which would have made sense if I got through the whole passage. So um, let's just change it here and just call it Honor Your Master. Honor Your Master. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So pastoral epistle, Paul's writing to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, and he's telling him how to address issues in the church. And this issue of the way bondservants, slaves, were uh, conducting themselves in both, uh, with both unbelieving masters and believing masters was an issue that Paul wanted to and does address and says, now teach this, Timothy, and exhort this. Um, yeah, it's an interesting time to go to these two verses, right? If you're here for the first time, you're thinking, why in the world would he choose that to talk about right now? Because we're going through the New Testament. And these are the next verses for us to study and to look at. I do think it's timely for us to consider this topic, though. And a lot of what I'm going to uh, talk about is we're certainly going to um, look at this passage and apply it to that current context, make a little bit of application to our own lives. But also, a good portion of today's message is going to be answering those that, um, are, that accuse Christianity and the Bible, and therefore God, of uh, not being fair and just and equitable, but encouraging slavery. And that is a charge that I know many of you have heard, you've read it, you've probably been in conversations with people, maybe you've even thought it. But um, we will look at that and we'll see what the Bible has to say. I want you to hold this in your mind to begin with. When we read this in 2020, we take our recent history, current events, and we like to infuse all of these things into the language that's in front of us. But that's not the way you study the Bible. The way you study the Bible is you go back, what did the author mean? What was the context? What was going on at the time in which this was written? And I believe what we'll see, what we will see this, is that both in the Old Testament, the slavery that existed there, and in the New Testament, the slavery that existed there, is very different. Not completely, but it is very different than the slavery that took place in this country and around the world, in England, with the African slave trade. I want to say that at the front. I'm going to come back to it and hopefully show you the evidence for that. But I want you to hear it at the beginning so that you'll understand that don't just take what you understand of American history slavery and infuse that all back into the scripture because you're not going to have a proper understanding. So hopefully we'll be able to work through that and have a, a way to answer those who bring that charge that God is for slavery. So as we look at this passage, we first see that Paul, he's not sugarcoating it. 
How does he refer to those that are in this position of being a bondservant? Well, at the beginning of verse 1, he says, as many as are under the yoke. Okay, yoke refers to burden, hard work. So he's not, he's not referring to people that have cushy jobs here. He acknowledges that the circumstances that they are in are difficult and likened to a yoke that would be placed upon animals to carry out tasks and burdens. So that is clear. He begins, first of all, of addressing those slaves that were at the church that had unbelieving masters. And what he tells them is make sure that you show honor to them so that, at the end of verse 1, so that they do not blaspheme. So if you come in and you get to this place where you are no longer showing honor, you're no longer working hard, and you're giving Jesus as the reason for why you don't want to do the things that you're asked to do, they will not want to hear what you have to say. That statement will trouble some. But you know what that statement tells us? Is that the salvation of the soul is a paramount issue at all times and in all ways in all circumstances, is the most important thing is that people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul is not sitting in some ivory tower making this statement. This is a man who, when was thrown in jail, had been beaten with rods, and the, the gates miraculously opened up, that he could have run and fled, chose to stay behind because he wanted to preach the gospel to the person that had put him in the jail. That's his heart. That personal um, freedoms and privileges do not trump the call to preach the gospel. This is why he says to the church at Corinth when they were taking each other, believers were taking each other to court because one brother was defrauding another brother, was ripping them off. And so they would take them to court to try and get you know, what was theirs back. And he says, as believers, this is not good. Why don't you just rather what? Does anybody know what it says? Suffer wrong. Suffer some wrong so that you don't ruin the testimony of Jesus Christ through uh, Christians when you go out into the courts and you begin to do this. So you can see the important place that um, sharing the gospel has. He goes on to talk to those who have believing masters and that they should not despise them and that they should serve them in a good manner. Now, the question that immediately comes to our mind is like, well, what does verse 3 say? Well, you get to verse 3, it has nothing to do with masters, which all of us are begging for something at this moment to be said to the masters, <laughs> right? Well, why isn't it there? Well, some will say, well, because God doesn't care about that. He just, it was a, it was a book that was written to prop up slavery. Well, again, let's, let's do a little bit of thinking on this. Paul is writing to Timothy who is in what town? Does anybody remember? He's in Ephesus. Ephesus. Is there a letter that was written to that church prior? And the answer is yes, the book of Ephesians. And when you go to the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 9, he does address the masters, um, as well as the bondservants in verses 5 through 8. But we'll read verse 9 here. It says, And you masters... Do the same things to them. So you can go back and read. It's, you know, serve them. It says, and you masters, do the same things to them. 
giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So they are exhorted. So at the time that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, there must have been, we assume that there was, masters that were being harsh with believing slaves and even unbelieving slaves and he exhorts them you better watch how you're living and how you treat them because you're going to stand before your judge one day and there's no partiality with him so you better make certain that you treat them properly not only does he um does he he doesn't even mention that they should stop harming them he says you shouldn't even threaten them he goes one step further give up the threats that you would do harm to them. So we see that they were addressed. So although it's not definitive in our text, one possibility for why he does not address the masters here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is because they heard him when they were addressed in Ephesians and they responded and that issue was dealt with. Again, maybe presumably, that then became an opportunity for some of the uh, slaves to begin to show dishonor and begin to show a lack of respect. And now he wants to dial into that issue. Those are possibilities. I can't say that with a biblical certainty, but I guess what I'm trying to put out there is there are some reasonable answers for why that didn't happen. So the question, though, I know that goes through our minds is, well, why doesn't the New Testament call for the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of all slaves? Why doesn't it do that? And the answer is this. The New Testament concerns itself with the individual and the heart of an individual coming to faith, getting saved, being equipped for the work of ministry, and then going out into the world to be a light and a witness. That is the focus. It does not focus upon the institutions of the government and of the societal norms and seek to overturn them. You may long for that, and I may long for that in the scripture to read that, but God does not do that. And I'll even go back a step further from the New Testament and go into the life of Jesus. Neither did Jesus do that for even the nation of Israel. He did not call for insurrection. He didn't do that. As a matter of fact, he taught something that sounds like this. If a soldier compels you to go one mile, go with him two. He doesn't call them to say, hey, if the the soldier calls you to go one and he's by himself and you think you can take him, knife him, hide him in the bushes, and then get on the way. He doesn't tell him to do that. And yet this was an occupying force that was oppressing the nation of Israel. Jesus did not call them to do that. This is not the focus of the New Testament. It's not trying to set up a state. It's not trying to set up some institution. It is seeking to be a group of individuals coming together under the name of Jesus Christ whose hearts and lives are changed to go out and to change the hearts and the lives of other people with the gospel. That's its focus. So it doesn't seek to address those types of things. And there, again, you can point out a few. I've given you two. Obviously, the one in front of us, it doesn't seek to overturn directly the uh, issue of slavery, nor does it seek to um, call for an insurrection against occupying Rome. That is just not what the scriptures are trying to do. 
One author puts it this way, Paul did not emphasize individual rights, but individual responsibilities. The chief concern for Paul was the glory of God, not manumission of the slaves or an increase of privilege for the owners. Equality before God, Galatians 3, 28 and 29, does not guarantee that all human beings enjoy equal roles in life status. While Paul accepted a different status for a master and slave, he demanded a changed attitude from both. You can't keep treating people the way you are used to treating people. You must treat them with respect. You must treat them like a brother. You must treat them with love and kindness. You must give up the harshness. You must give up disrespect and rebellion. This is what the New Testament calls the believer to live like. Galatians 3, 28, 29 talks about how there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female. This is God's statement. We're all created in the image of God. And this is the result. In Christ, we are all equal. There are not, we may have class distinctions and we may have um, ethnic distinctions and gender distinctions, but this in the house of God all people are equal and have the same value placed upon them. And this is what Paul put his attention to, inspired of the Holy Spirit, to do. What does the Bible have to say about slavery? And I want to look, first of all, in the Old Testament. Because if you read, or you get into a conversation with somebody who is not taking the time to study this, quite often you're going to say, oh, I don't want anything to do with your Christianity. This, is a, this was a, a book that, that promotes slavery. And so we hear that, they, they hear this, and they are equating the system that went on in this country, a corrupt, inhumane system, and they associate that with what was going on in the Bible, of the Old Testament. I want to be clear. I'm not saying, nor does the Bible try to communicate that... Um, it was like a picnic to be a slave, even under those circumstances. But I'm just going to go through, and I'm going to give you a list of quite a few things that the Old Testament has to say about what slavery was like. Number one, a slave could voluntarily decide to stay as a slave. Now, this is something that's, this kind of hits our ears strange, but if a slave was in a in a place where they were being taken care of and their family was being taken care of and they were being shown respect in all, they could, for the rest of their life, say, I will be a bond slave. All of us, in a sense, are bond slaves, right, of Jesus Christ. We want to serve him. And so there is that idea. Deuteronomy 15, 16, and 17 talks about somebody becoming a slave for life because they find their circumstances favorable. Um, secondly, when a slave was freed, he was to receive gifts that enabled him to survive economically. Deuteronomy 15, 14. That's very different than what happened in this country. So God commanded that when they go free, they should be taken care of. A Hebrew slave could become free six years after six years of service. Um, Exodus 21.2, Deuteronomy 15. Obviously, Deuteronomy 15 has a lot to say. Um, uh, they could be released in the year of Jubilee. Um, they could also find that they would be released if they were to marry the master's son, or if they refused, then they could be set free, Exodus 21. If they were injured, 
they could be, under those certain circumstances, they should be let free. And they could also purchase their own freedom. Um, also, um, an escaped slave was not, let me be clear, was not to be returned as property to the former owner. Read it on your own, Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 through 16. So a slave that left and was now in your house or in your keeping, you were not required to send them back. They were not to be viewed as property in that way. Um, a slave was to be considered a member of the master's household, Leviticus 22.11, and therefore the privileges of food and care and all the rest that went along with it. They were to have a Sabbath rest like everybody else. They could inherit property, Genesis chapter 15 gives us that example. And sometimes they were in control of entire households. Genesis 24 too, they were in charge of the money. They were in charge, think of Joseph, right? People could be, in, they could be in a place. So it was, it was a different system than what we were familiar with. And sometimes they were trusted advisors, 1 Samuel 9, 5 through 10. Treatment of slaves was not to be severe, Leviticus 25. Um, if you were a master and you punished your slave and you killed them, you then would have to have some type of punishment meted out upon you, and it could be even your very life. Again, it's very different um, than what we saw happening with the African slave trade. All of this is found in Scripture. You can read it on your own. Um, and then lastly... Um, not that this is the last word on it, but just the last point that I want to bring to your attention is that kidnapping somebody to make them a slave was pro prohibited in Amos 1.6 and was punishable by death, Deuteronomy 24.7 and uh, Exodus 21.16. So yes, slavery did exist, but if you read and you only think of it as of what, what went on in this country, our minds would be troubled as to why. What about the New Testament? What does the New Testament teach about slavery? Well, we got a little taste of it right here. But let me begin first by trying to paint the picture of what the first century world slavery system looked like under the Roman Empire. So it wasn't a Christian institution. This wasn't a, uh, this that I'm referring to now was not a Jewish institution. It was a Roman institution, something that was going on. First of all, nearly one-third of all people were slaves, particularly in the urban setting where the mass of population was. Most people, a third of them, excuse me, a third were um, slaves. You were able to get freedom, just like we read in the Old Testament. They often were paid. They could receive inheritances. They became spouses of uh, the owner's children. Uh, you could sell yourself into service if your circumstances were so rough that you were unable to provide for your family and you're on the verge of starvation and the rest. Rather than go through that, you could go and you could become uh, a slave to a person. Obviously, you're going to be mindful of who you're trying to do that to, you would think, as much as circumstances would last. And, but, I, but I also want to be clear. Some were, were terrible. Many masters were harsh, and they were cruel. So while I want to make a distinction between the, the two systems, 
I don't want to be simplistic about it and naive to the fact that many people suffered under those systems as well. Of course, under the Old Testament system, if you hurt and harm, there were consequences that you would experience in your own body. Whether they were carried out or not, I, honestly, I don't know the answer to that question, but we know what God thought about it at least. So that was under the time of the New Testament writing, first century AD. That's kind of what it looked like. What was the teachings that were given to believers about this subject? Number one, as we just read here, they were exhorted to be witnesses. You're like, well, what's the value of that? The most important task any human being can ever be given as the task of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that shows more trust and honor than for us to be entrusted with the gospel message. And the Lord gave that to all people. He gave it to men. He gave it to women. He gave it to slaves. He gave it to masters. He gave it to freedmen. All people in the church were called to be a witness. Because he knew that they were a, a vessel that could be trusted. Um, we read in Ephesians 6 that our, their work should be unto the Lord. Don't let your eye, be eye service unto your master, but do your work as unto the Lord. Again, we may look at this and say, what's the value of that? Well, if you were in unfavorable circumstances and now you are taught, you know, you can in those miserable situations that you're in, you can actually, you're doing the work to that man or to that woman, but here's the deal. Do it to the Lord and the Lord will reward you. Listen, it, that applies to our, our current you know, employment situation, whatever you may have. And typically, you know, we talk about employment as an application of this passage. And I'm really not going to do a lot of that because I, just, I want us to just think about it in the context of the way it really was, and that was slavery. But there certainly is application for us in this. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul told those that were slaves, if you have the possibility to become free, then become free. Take it. He exhorted a, Paul exhorted a man by the name of Philemon, who was a Christian, who was a, uh, had slaves, and had one slave in particular that did him harm and ran away got in trouble, was thrown into jail at a time that Paul was in jail for preaching the gospel, and he led him to the Lord. That's what we believe the, kind of the, the chain of events were. And as they were doing this, they made the connection that, well, I have a friend named Philemon. Well, that used to be the guy, you know, I, I um, was a servant to, and that's the guy that I did harm to. Well, Paul writes a letter on his behalf and calls upon uh, Philemon to forgive him and to emancipate him and um, to let him go free. So this is what the this is what Paul does. He for an individual he makes that call. It's a, read the letter Philemon. It's quite interesting how he writes and leads up to the request. Um, Paul addressed slaves with spiritual moral instruction. Now, to most of us, we're like. Well, what is the significance of that? Well, to us, maybe we don't see the significance of that. But in his day, it was highly significant. 
It was significant that the the scriptures would say we are all equal. Now being all equal, that means we all should be taught and instructed on moral issues and spiritual issues. Which quite often, a, a master would not allow any moral instruction, any kind of philosophical ideas or spiritual ideas to be talked about. Because if their servants heard that, it may cause them problems. But the gospel, the New Testament, treated all people as equal. When they came, when it was time to preach the gospel, when they were in the church, they were being instructed, which meant, obviously, that if a master was being rebuked for being harsh to a believing slave, that believing slave might have been in the same room at the same time. Just like when the servant was being exhorted to not be disrespectful, the master would have been there. But let's not just keep it to the the master and servant relationship. All of the teaching of the New Testament was given. That you should be kind and gentle and long-suffering and patient. That was for the master. But that also informed the servant of what he should expect from his brother or his sister. So you, you can see that at a time when that was not allowed to be spoken, for him to address them on that level was quite something. I know I'm, a few weeks ago I mentioned this, and I'm forgetting the, the name of the, the island. I think it was uh, the West Indies. Um, a governor there who had African uh, slaves on the island would not allow the gospel to be preached on that island because he was afraid if they found out what the Bible has to say, that he would not have, it would bring an end to his Um, benefiting from them and so he sought to stop that the Lord ended up getting people down there and almost all of those slaves ended up getting saved so it blew up and it backfired but he but there was moral instruction that was given again we can read this in our day and that does not seem significant but if you were sitting in the room in that day in that culture and Paul says now I want to talk to you masters You better be careful how you're treating these because you've got a master. You have a judge in heaven and he shows no partiality. There would have been a sucking sound that went on in the room. It's like he didn't just do that. He did do that. And you can find this throughout. all. But don't think of it just in terms of when the master is addressed or when the servant is addressed. All of the teaching was given. And of course, we know how we're to treat each other. And so this was something that was different. Again, we already looked at Galatians 3, 28 through 29. There was uh, uh, no distinctions between class, between gender, um, between ethnicity, between your being free or slave. But here's one that I think is I really want us to see, and it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And there you find that Paul in the New King James says and condemns kidnapping. Some of your translations may have Um, Slave trade as a translation. That is the idea that is communicated there. Just like in the Old Testament, you go, you, you kidnap somebody, you turn and you sell them into slavery. The New Testament forbids that from happening. And here's the truth. If that one verse, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10, would have been followed by every believer... And every Christian and would have been taught in the churches, there never would have been slave trade going on in this country. Because all of the slaves that made it here, for the most part, were people, and it wasn't just from Africa, okay? But that's, you know, was a big 
that was a significant part of it all. There were other people too. But that would have never happened. And if, if that would have been obeyed, there wouldn't have been slaves in this country and it wouldn't have gone on. So when people say the Bible encourages slavery, that is not what's being taught. You know, there are times when God deals with a hard heart and in the way a culture is when it's not even his ideal plan for that culture. And I've got a great example for you. Jesus said, it is because of the hardness of your heart that God allows divorce. That is not God's plan. He does not want there to be divorce, but because people treat each other incorrectly and they harm each other, he provided a way for a woman that was being mistreated to get out from those circumstances and have a way to live after she was out of that house. That's why the certificate of divorce was given because of the hardness of heart. And there's a hardness of heart that existed in the culture of that day. And so the Lord gave instruction that was to be helpful for those that found themselves in that situation. But there it is, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Now here's the sad thing. The church, at the time that slavery was going on, the church... I don't think it's an overstatement to say mostly was complicit in this process and did not speak up and did not teach this. That's a, that's a sad thing. But that's not necessarily what the Lord is saying. They failed to teach what the Word of God said. And so Bibles were put together that took out any kind of, you, would, you know, a slave Bible that wouldn't have certain passages they would keep them kind of under this yoke and not allow them to see the full picture. They took verses out, and that was the Bible they were given. And so there, there's plenty that the church did wrong um, at this time in our history. But praise the Lord, there are those that were raised up. And I'm not going to say they were only Christians, but there are some significant, the most significant name you can find when you begin to talk about the abolishment of slave, abolition movement, and emancipation is the name William Wilberforce. And he was a, one that was in the parliament in England. And he was a wild guy, comes from a wealthy family, um, and was just a, just a troublemaker. But he was in government. He was in privilege. And he ended up coming to the place of getting saved. And as he looked at this, he thought, I can't live as a Christian and continue to be in government. I've got to get on with other issues that relate to the kingdom of God. And so he went to turn in his resignation. And I believe it was a prime minister, or at least the leader of their party at that time, begged him not to do that and, and, and asked him, fight with me for, the, for abolition. Use your oratory skills. Use your place in parliament and your faith to overturn this. And, and William was about to say no, but he decided he would talk to one more person. And he went to a pastor by the name of John Newton, who was a former slave trader and one who got saved and wrote Amazing Grace, who saved a wretch like me. He understood what his life was like before. And talked to him, and he's like, no, you, you need to stay. And you need to use your position to see if you can bring about change. And so he did. And he suffered so much harm and in his body and in society and was, was 
Enemy number one for so many. But he stood his ground, and for decades he fought for this. And finally, um, the abolition of slave trade stopped. And before he died, not long before he died, maybe a year or two before, there was the emancipation of the slaves in England. Now, America followed behind it, but he paved the way. And this was a man who was saved. He was getting counsel from um, the Wesleys, and they were encouraging him in this as well. And so... People that have been touched by the gospel and truly understand and obey the word of God had a profound impact in this country and other countries in making certain that the word of God was followed and people were set free. There are others, of course, in our own country. We can think of Frederick Douglass, the freedman, who, um, you know, as a black man, fought for this as well. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Constitution, who was one of the who established the first abolitionist society as a believer, as somebody that was in a place of influence. Moses Brown, a Quaker, did the same, and the list could go on and on. Not all were believers, okay? I'm not trying to just gloss it over here. But I said that the Bible does not seek to directly, it does not, was not its goal to overturn slavery. Yet the things that are in the Bible, when they are followed and a heart is changed and you love your neighbor as yourself, and when you're not allowing to the capture of a person and selling of a person, what ends up happening direct, indirectly as a result of it is that system falls and that system crushes itself. Now, I'm speaking past tense of what has happened in our country and over in England and Old Testament and New Testament. But you know that the conservative number of people that are in slavery today is 24 million. 24 million people today. It goes up as high as 48 million. I tried to look at some of the nuances on how there could be such a wide swing, but there's just those you can go look it up on your own and try and figure it out. So this is still a message that is relevant to be heard. And to be spoken. And again, it's the taking of people against their will and then forcing them in, selling them into slavery that the Bible so clearly condemns. There in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. So yeah, social justices, injustices still go on. People are still oppressed. Widows and orphans, they're still taken advantage of. They're still being abused. Unborn children, that's a social issue that we should be concerned about, them being put to death. There are many issues that should be a point of concern. We should be concerned, especially within the household of our faith, that many Christians are targets of persecution, are taken into sex slave trade because of their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're being murdered. There's plenty that is still wrong and corrupt in this world. You know, when I don't know, if you want to read about William Wilberforce, there's a book by Eric Metaxas. I encourage you to read it. And you'll see how God raised up one man and used him. But you know, all of us need to be willing to be those people that are loving and following after Jesus Christ, loving people. And this is what we do as Christians. Love is like in the bullseye of our target, right? Our job description is that you would love one another. I give you a new commandment. Love each other. This is what we are to do. And so we can and we should look out for the widow and for the orphan and for those that are oppressed. And to ask the Lord, how do you want to use me? How can I uh, be of an influence? But this is what I want to say. And I've taken this whole time to refer to men and all the rest that, that turn this way. But these people, 
particularly I'll talk about William Wilberforce. He did not forsake the gospel to do this. He kept preaching the gospel. That may, remained a priority in his life was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's sad, but for some reason it's gotten into the hearts and the minds of some is that if you're really going to be involved in those social issues that I've mentioned, some of those things, that we stop preaching the gospel, which I, it just it mystifies me why we would think that. Listen, there's a, there's a push going on in our country to address the dark shadow of, of what slavery did and segregation did in this country. It's a big push to deal with this. This is my exhortation to you. As a Christian, your first priority is to be one who fulfills the mission of Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. But while you do that, you can easily be ministering to the social injustices that go on. But don't ever separate the two. And if the church ever gets to the place, and there are plenty of churches where this has happened, where the social issues have overtaken the gospel issue. And we don't have the right to do that because we are servants. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. And this must be the primary thing that we do without doing the other. We see how the gospel touched a life in William Wilberforce, changed him, and then he began to put his efforts into the political process and the legislative process while not forsaking the gospel mission. And he accomplished more than just about any other man has ever accomplished in human history against social injustice. I mean, you can read about it. He, he had such an influence, he even began to change the way animals were being treated throughout the country. It, it really, it's an amazing thing that God did through him. And so I encourage you to be faithful in the mission that you've been called to do and I've been called to do is to preach the gospel. But we don't forget the widow and we don't forget the orphan and we don't forget the oppressed and those that are downtrodden. We are to go to them with love. This is pure and undefiled religion. This is where our heart goes. But we go with the gospel as well as with food and clothing. So it's not, this is not hard. We can do both. And may the Lord raise us all up to do that. So as we, as we wrap this up here, and message up, this is my exhortation, is, is to look out for the interest of others, to pay attention to the needs and the hurt and the pain of other people and what they are going through. And this is also my exhortation. If you've been hurt and you've been treated poorly, be forgiving because you've been called to do that as well. We walk with grace and forgiveness because we're believers and we're representing a cause that is far bigger than anything we could ever dream up on our own and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But again, it's not one or the other. It's easily the both. And we have great examples of how to do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us and teaches us and Lord, I pray you just allow these things to sink into our heart and mind. We're living in such tumultuous, uh, tumultuous days right now. And Lord, we need to speak your word. We need to speak truth. We need to show kindness and care and concern. We need to be lovers of all people. 
And Lord, you have equipped us for this. And so would you help us, Lord Jesus, to look out for the needs of others, to be like those like a William Wilberforce that would stand up and just say, this is wrong, but not forget to preach the gospel so that the person that's being wrong can also be saved. And so we ask for this, Lord, in our country right now, as we pull up ourselves apart politically and racially and economically and all the things that are going on, Lord, we pray, give us a voice to proclaim your love and your truth. May people come to salvation. May you pour out your mercy upon this country once again. And then we pray that as this happens, that those that are still being oppressed, those that are still finding themselves being taken advantage of, Lord, that we will be able to address those issues in a way that honors and glorifies you.